standing for the reading of scripture this morning as we come to uh, the gospel of St. Mark chapter 5. We pick back up with the exposition of Mark's gospel. And this morning we'll give an overview of the chapter and then we'll be coming back in the next few weeks looking in more detail. So I want to read several portions from chapter 5 of Mark this morning. Uh, Beginning in chapter 5 verses 1 and 2, let us hear and attend to the word of God. Then they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And now down to verses 21 through 23. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue uh, came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. And then down to verses 25 through 27. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him to the crowd and touched his garment. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. The energy of Mark's gospel message as straight talk about Jesus Christ, that's what we've been emphasizing as we've started the exposition. Mark's gospel, straight talk about Jesus Christ. Well, this energy of Mark's gospel is expressed through the style of his writing with a sense of urgency. But this urgency should not be misunderstood as desperation or exaggeration. In our contemporary culture, this urgency would be recognized as the wow factor. And I mean that in a very sincere and honest way. By faith, we should be wowed by the things we hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you don't become dull of hearing. I hope those of you who are seasoned believers who have long been following the Lord Jesus, who have been in this assembly for many, many years, I hope we don't grow grow dull or disinterested or think that we've heard it all. Um, I want to point out to you that, that that Mark writes with that kind of urgency because it's an urgency of faith of how we live. We live by faith and not by sight. So chapter 5 of Mark's gospel account escalates the astounding power of Jesus over demons, disease, and death. There are three stories that we touched on in reading portions out of chapter 5 this morning. These three stories in chapter 5 are thematically grouped together. They're not just uh, sort of thrown haphazardly. Uh, There is a purpose and intent, Mark guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. I know the chapter divisions and the verse divisions are not part of the original text. But nonetheless, they serve us well. And I think you need to see that these three stories are thematically grouped together. The man in Gadarene who is possessed by a legion of demons. An unnamed woman who is healed from her bleeding disease. And then the raising of Jairus' daughter from death. Well, how are these stories different from the previous record of similar stories in chapters 1 through 4? In chapter 1 through 4, we've seen Jesus dealing with demons and disease. And while he hasn't necessarily raised those who are physically dead, he's called the dead spiritually to life, to follow him and to believe in him and to receive the life of, of the gift of eternal life. We have record of that in chapters 1 through 4. 
So what's different as we come to chapter 5? Well, the magnitude of the events of chapter 5 is emphasized following the building climax ending chapter 4. Remember how chapter 4 ended with Jesus showing mastery over the wind and the sea as creator, as uncreated God, attesting to his saving power? Look back at uh, uh, verses 39 through 41 of chapter 4, where chapter 4 ends. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? And we pointed out here, Jesus uses a word for terror-stricken. Why are you so terror-stricken? How is it that you have no faith? And he's not saying they are not believers, that they have no faith, but that their terrifying fears have overcome their faith. And in verse 41, they feared a different word here for awe and reverence. They reverently awed exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, who is this Jesus? He is the Creator. He's the uncreated God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Come in the incarnation as God's visitation to us, attesting of his saving power. And what does he tell us about that? Only God as creator and savior is to be worshiped. What immediately happens in chapter 5? If you will note that in each of the three stories of chapter 5, Jesus is given and he receives worship. Chapter 5 and verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him. This is the man possessed with demons. I know there's a mystery here. We're going to get into it next week. But this is what the text tells us. Look at uh, at verse 15. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Look at verses 19 and 20. However, Jesus did not permit him, that is, the man whom he had cast out the demons and saved, he didn't permit him to go with him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. He worshiped Jesus. This is attestation of Jesus' saving power. And Jesus receives that worship. If you will look at verse 22. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. Look down at verses 33 and 34. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So I want you to see that connection. In each of these three stories, Jesus is worshipped. They fall at his feet. They acknowledge and worship him to be Lord and Savior. He is the creator of all. He just manifests his power over the wind and the sea and over the creation. Now he moves into the realm of the other world, of the the demons and of disease and of death itself. And all fall at his feet and worship him by the power of his word. So Mark 5 also symbolizes and reveals for us Jesus' authority and power between the natural world and the supernatural world. I want you to see this. It's very interesting that in Mark chapter 5, we see Jesus passing over and then back the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee represents a translucent curtain or portal between worlds as Jesus passes over to the other side and back again. 
And we read of this in Scripture, that, that Jesus is the transcendent one. Uh, he is uh, the veil through which we come to God as mediator. He bridges the worlds. Uh, he, he is pictured to us as having a foot upon the land and upon the sea in His powerful resurrection imagery. And uh, we're told that before the, the throne of God, the crystal sea is there. Opaquely, we see through that by faith to the promises of God revealed to us in the power of the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. And so I, I don't know how we could grow dull. How could we grow bored? How could we become disinterested? How could we think we know it all? When we're met with such astounding messages and stories about who Jesus is, reminding us, and even this morning, and as we continue on in chapter 5, to be reminded of who the Lord Jesus is. Um, chapter 5, as the gospel source being uniquely Son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord over the living and the dead, even between this world and the other world. That's something we're faced with. We should always be faced with from Scripture. We were talking this morning in Sunday school that Christian faith is not a self-help program. It's often been reduced to that. But I'm calling you to faith this morning. I'm telling you that the source of the gospel, the good news, is Jesus Christ Himself as Son of God, uniquely, one and only. And He's revealed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's Lord over the living and the dead. And that includes this world and the other world. That meets us in Scripture. Now before we go on, let me again give you a little bit of an overview to keep things together as we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. Remember that we started out in chapter 1 with the Gospel beginning. That's what Mark tells us. The beginning of the Gospel. The Gospel begins with who Jesus Christ is. He is the source of the good news. And the gospel claims this world for the kingdom of God. That's why the message of the kingdom is so important in what Jesus preached. He came preaching repentance and the kingdom of God is here. Further on, we find that Jesus goes out to a, on an assault mission. I pointed out to you that the gospel campaign that starts with Jesus going into the wilderness after his baptism to confront the devil. I told you he didn't go out there afraid of his own shadow tripping and falling and stumbling around uh, to be uh, uh, targeted by the devil. He went on an assault mission against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That brings us then to chapter 2. As the gospel source being Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has authority on earth. Remember, this is what set the religious leaders off, that Jesus claimed to have the authority to forgive sin. He said, what's easier to say? Take up your bed and walk or your sins are forgiven you. On a human level, we'd say, oh, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven you. But not from God's perspective. That's the much harder thing. Much greater in magnitude is it to say and to forgive sins than it is to restore someone who is paralyzed. We get it backwards. Jesus gets it straight. And Jesus claims authority on earth to forgive sin. That brings us to chapter 3. As the gospel source being uniquely Son of God, Jesus Christ creates the new covenant family of God by a supernatural salvation. There were some disturbing things in chapter 3 that even Jesus' own family doubted Him. But He creates the new covenant family of God by a supernatural salvation. I believe that included His own family members. In chapter 4, as we finished up and I alluded to, as the gospel source being uniquely Son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's mediator, the only go-between of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, and He is creator. He is the uncreated God. 
To Jesus has been committed the mysteries and the keys of the kingdom. He is the mediator. We only receive from Him the understanding of the kingdom of God. He is the only go-between by whom we must go into and enter into the kingdom of God. He keeps the mysteries and He shares them with us. And He demonstrates the power of those mysteries because He is the Creator Himself. So there is another world, a dimension of reality, a created realm of existence beyond this limited physical creation. We speak of the natural world and the supernatural world, for lack of better terms, really. These two worlds do intersect and overlap. Scripture reveals that to us, and perhaps more than we're aware. But there is an irrepressible witness within the human conscience that is manifested on the one hand by extreme objections and denials. Rationalists, those who try to to remove any witness or any sense of that which is other, that which is supernatural. And this even applies to Scripture. There are those, there's a whole uh, uh, heresy that leads to apostasy of those who deny the miracles of Scripture. But we can't deny Scripture if we're going to have the truth. We must accept it all, even the mysterious and difficult things that reflect and and give us some inkling that there is the world of the supernatural. We don't object to that. We don't deny that. On the other hand, there are those who give in to wild speculations and claims. The mystics who tell us that the supernatural is all around us and that we have to generate some way of connecting with it and an attempt uh, through all and various means. There's this tug of war between rationalists and mystics, but neither of them can lead us into the truth. So human imagination is led into superstitions, often by informal myths or folklore or entertainment, but also by formalized systems of religion and philosophy. I know that we are so impressed by the entertainment world around us. And I'm afraid that sometimes we let that influence us more than Holy Scripture. We do not compare the Scriptures to myths. Uh, There is mystery in the Word of God. The Scriptures reveal to us mysteries, things that we could not know that God reveals and makes known. But they are not myths. It's not folklore. Uh, Many take the... uh, Stories of Scripture and the stories of Jesus. And they turn them into folklore. Like the woman with the issue of blood. They'll turn that into some folklore uh, and try to make some moralism out of it. No, it's a lesson of faith. And we need to be very careful of that. We need to be very careful that we don't uh, become more interested and more influenced by the theology of Star Wars or the theology of Lord of the Rings. Even though I, I enjoy both of those. And even though I really enjoy Lord of the Rings because of its uh, intense Christian imagery and ideas, but it's not Scripture. And it's, it's not a safe guide to us to understand the supernatural. It's a story. Don't get your theology from those sources. Be very careful. Even as these things become formalized into systems of religion and philosophy, they're all around us, but they're not true to Scripture. That's why we must be taught and hold to what the Scriptures teach us. It's interesting how these human speculations and imaginations about another world of supernatural beings, of angels and demons, of superheroes and monsters, of superhuman perfectibility and superhuman depravity, they seem to cycle back and forth between the desire for individual utopia and then the dread of collectivist slavery. 
I see those themes cycling over and over again, particularly in popular entertainment, but also in literature and the great themes of human consciousness. But these things simply go around in circles like a dog chasing its tail because they do not have the truth, the truth that only Scripture can reveal to us. So with human speculation and imaginations that give in to superstitions, there's this attempt and this desire to find your individual utopia, your karma, your whatever. Influenced by Eastern mysticism and false religions. It's all about you. It's all about you having your own heaven. That's not what Scripture teaches us. And so we need to be very, very careful in in combating these things. And, And we see where human imagination and superstition goes. It always bottoms out with failure. It always bottoms out in death. It's often predicted or presented to us in terms of some kind of collectivist slavery. Have you ever noticed how even in popular cinema, when they depict the draconian kind of overbearing post-apocalyptic societies, that it really resembles hell in terms of death and destruction and slavery and misery and darkness? That's what I said. There's an irrepressible witness to realities, but human imagination is not reliable. In our addressing these things, have you noticed that these projections from human imagination are sometimes clownish? Sometimes they try to make fun of it. Sometimes they even try to find some benevolent idea. Can we come up with a a science fiction and with um, a projection of human perfectibility that then becomes benevolent? It never lasts. It never lasts because they're most always terrifying It's almost always about fall and destruction of the world or trying to save the world, but not trying to save the world by redemption and recreation. So all I'm trying to say to you is that the popular kinds of themes that deal with human imagination and superstitions about the supernatural and the desire even for that which is superhuman is not sanctified, is not holy, and is not healthy. Don't get your theology from that. It always ends in death and destruction. Only Jesus is the Savior. Only redemption comes through God in Christ. And only the promise of the Creator can recreate to remove the effects of sin. So there is a serious problem of heresy when these types of human speculations and imaginations seep into and inform Christian theology. I, I'm warning you about that, and I'm doing that in preface of chapter 5 uh, for the Gospel of Mark as we come to it, because we want to be spiritually healthy, sound in body, soul, and spirit. So we must accept the limited revelation of the Holy Scriptures. It doesn't tell us everything that we want to know. As a matter of fact, as we get into chapter 5, and I can tell you next week, as we get into chapter 5 and de- uh, Jesus dealing with this man who has a legion of demons, there are going to be more questions than answers. But I'll tell you why. Because those questions move us to faith. Those questions are about our trusting God and what is revealed to us of the seen and the unseen, not our having the answers or the human ability to figure it all out. I'm not going to tell you that this is some kind of moralistic folklore or tale, that this man really just was upset and had some kind of mental condition. The Scripture said he had a legion of demons. So we're going to talk about that, as unsettling as it may be. And the fact that there are more questions than we have answers move us to one thing. Do you trust God for what you see and what is unseen? And do you believe His Word 
And do you get your truth from what the Holy Scriptures reveal? And most importantly of all, that Jesus is greater than the powers of the unseen world. He is trustworthy. We need to look to Him in this life and in the life to come. So, the overview of Mark chapter 5, where we'll be going in the coming weeks. In verses 1 through 20, the gathering man possessed by a legion of demons. As Jesus passes over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, it's interesting that it's, it's uh, noted for us. He goes over to the, to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He's, he's, he's uh, traveling over. He's transferring over to the other shore, to the eastern shore. What we should pick up and begin to consider about this because of what happens over there is that Jesus is divinely transcendent. He transcends the natural world and the supernatural world with the presence and power over the living and the dead. So we're going to look more closely at that and see that life and death, who is living and who is dead, is a lesson of faith. And so I hope you will consider and be in prayer about that. And I hope you'll capture, too, that sense of the symbolic and that Jesus passing over to the other side is also suggestive to us of His divinely transcendent presence, of of who He is between the two worlds. And then the next story in verses 21 through 34 is the woman with a bleeding disease. As Jesus returns from the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he returns from the eastern shore back over to the western shore. Returning back, so by his divine eminence, he is present in this natural world with supernatural power to save the body, soul, and spirit. Let me ask you, do you ever feel like you're lost in the crowd? Do you feel sometimes that you're even lost in God's crowd? You're lost in the, the when you're gathered here at church or when you're out and about and people are going hither and thither and you read about the crowds that came around Jesus and you think that you're just lost in the crowd. Does God know you? Does God know where you are? Does God know what you need? Does He know what you're going through? This story is for you. Because by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is imminent, the Son of God, you are never lost in the crowd. So I hope you'll take great heart and comfort from that as we come to this story of the woman with the Bleeding disease and Jesus healing her. It's a lesson of faith. And then we'll come to the conclusion in verses 35 through 43 with the Honorable Jairus, the, one of the leaders of the synagogue, as he comes with a plea for his dying daughter. Jesus is divinely transcendent and imminent between worlds, so he is Lord of the living and the dead. Who is living and who is dead? This story turns us up on our heads. As we look, not with human eyes, but with the eyes of faith from the Word of God, who is living and who is dead. Now let me ask you something. What would it matter if Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from death 2,000 years ago, or yesterday, or today or tomorrow? You know what it really comes down to and what the focus is on, don't you? It comes down to faith. Do we believe Jesus did it? Now, I have some real issues with those who claim to raise the dead today. And you know I have some some issues and concerns about uh, people um, putting a false pressure on faith healing and things of that nature. Uh, and even with the issues of giving attention and human speculation and, and uh, superstitions to demons. I believe what Scripture says. 
But I also believe in limiting ourselves to what Scripture says and not going beyond the boundaries of Scripture. And so what is far more important to us and what Jesus is teaching us through this is that with His power to raise the dead, that leads us, it begs a question, who is living and who is dead? There are some some questions about what happens with Jairus' daughter who was in death. You know, did she go to heaven? Or was she suspended in death somehow? Scripture doesn't tell us all about this. Do those whom Jesus raised from the dead, did they die a second time? Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, others. I believe when Jesus raised from the dead, he raised them out of spiritual death too. That's what I believe. I believe he didn't just raise their body from death. He raised their souls out of sin's death. I believe they were his, his, claimed by him, adopted into his family. So Lazarus, the widow of Nain's son, uh, Jairus' daughter, all whom Jesus raised from the dead, that mystery of those who came out of the tombs at Jesus' resurrection, the tombs in Jerusalem, just a couple of verses in Matthew that tell us that. I believe all of that, even though I can't tell you any more about it. I don't know what happened to them. I think that that song we confessed and what Scripture says to us about Jesus taking the captives to heaven has something to do with those whom he raised from the dead. But this is the point that's being made to us. It leads us and it causes us to beg the question of who is really dead and who is really alive. We look all around us today and we see people all around. But who is dead and who is alive when it comes to the ultimate question? And that ultimate question, as you well know, is what comes after. What is for me? What is for you after? And that's the uncomfortable thing that Scripture is constantly pressuring us with. This is not the world of final answers. This is not the world of final life. There is a world of life after death. And that's what Scripture raises our attention to and raises our conscience. And that's where we look to the Lord Jesus, the one whom we confess to be the source of the gospel. He is the good news for us. He is Lord over the living and the dead between this world and the other world. So we'll come back to Mark chapter 5 and give more detailed attention to the three stories that lead us in faith and good hope here in the Gospel of Mark. Our concluding hymn this morning as we sing in response.